Go to Philippians chapter 2 and ready yourselves. We're going to read a portion of Scripture, about 11 verses here. If you're new with us, this is our preferred way of teaching and preaching through the Bible, is just to select a book and to go through it verse by verse, piece by piece. So we have for about three months now been in Philippians, and we'll, we'll bite off another passage, and we're just in the middle of chapter 2 today. We'll read verses 5 through 11. As you're turning, I do want to invite you back tonight. I know it's Mother's Day. Many of you have plans, things like that, which is a-okay. That's perfectly fine. But if you don't, uh, we do have service tonight at 6. Possibly the most countercultural message I've ever preached in my life uh, will actually be this evening. So if that intrigues you, you can come. Uh, it's from Colossians 3. I'm just calling it sexuality with the gospel in mind. And that, that text that we're just walking through Colossians, it hones in on that issue. And, and I, I think that it will be helpful uh, whether you're struggling with something along those lines or not, maybe you know someone who is, I think that it would be helpful, so I'll invite you back to that. I do want to point out Aaron uh, Bowman. Aaron, could you just slip your hand up real quick? Aaron's right here in the front row. That was easy. So Aaron's going to be baptized here after the service, but is wanting to join the church today as well. So this is kind of conditional on the baptism, but uh, with that in place, if you would like to welcome Aaron into the family, would you say a big Amen. Amen. Awesome. I love it. That, Aaron, that was bigger than normal. They must really like you. So that was awesome. So Aaron, looking forward to even baptism here in a few moments. All right, Philippians 2, you're, you're right there. Uh, let us read. I'm going to back up and read the four verses we covered last week just to frame this because it all kind of runs together. And then we'll cover verses 5 through 11 this morning. So here is chapter 2. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy. Paul's about to tell the church, don't be divisive, don't be stupid, be unified. But his foundation and grounds for this is the comfort of Jesus, the love of God, the fellowship in the Spirit, the affection that they have for each other. That's the foundation. So he says, look, has God done anything for you? Like, have you felt that at all? If you felt that, then, then even try to make me happy. Like, this is kind of a, a sub-reason, but even try to make me happy. And here's how you would do this, that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. What a challenging verse. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Then he, he segues just beautifully right into Christ, who is our model of this mindset. Without breaking stride, Paul goes straight to Jesus. And Paul's about to say a lot about Jesus. This is a beautiful text on Jesus that teaches us about his preexistence, about his equality with God, about the incarnation, about his death on the cross, about the exaltation that Christ has. It's all beautiful, but all of it is meant to point towards the, the mindset of humility and servitude that we should have. And here's what Paul says, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, 
and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This morning is going to be pretty simple. Really, this passage can be broken down into, into three parts, the prescription, the condescension, and the exaltation. And I want you just to see first the prescription that Paul gives us in verse number five in light of the lowliness of mind that we should have, in light of esteeming ourselves, which, by the way, this does fit with Mother's Day. This isn't a Mother's Day message per se, but we get this on Mother's Day. We take mom and we try to esteem her better than ourselves. We try to prefer her. We try to do something special for her. We try to put her needs or wants or desires ahead for a day. And Paul's going to expand way beyond that and say this isn't just for mothers. This is for everyone. And this isn't just for one day. This is, this is for, you know, all time. But this is really, we get this, putting someone else first. But Paul says, in case you don't, let me talk to you about Jesus, who is our model. And let me give you a prescription here. Have harmony with the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Paul is advocating a mind transplant. Not a a brain transplant, but a mind transplant to have the mind of the Savior. And this is why Paul can exhort the two ladies in Philippians 4.2. Flip over actually a page, you'll see this. It's just kind of this this random shot across the bow, but it's rooted in what he says here in chapter 2, that he can get to 4.2 and say, look, I beseech Yodius and I beseech Syntyche. You say, is that how you're supposed to say it? I have no idea, but that's just strange names, but that they be of the same mind in the Lord. You say, "Who who are these people? Two ladies who were not getting along, who were fighting. I don't know exactly what the issue was here, how, how deep it was, how, how real it was, if it was something big or something minor. I don't know, but he knew that they were not of the same mind. He said, look, both of you get the mind of the Lord, and this is going to help you out. So the solution to our pettiness and our cattiness and our friction and our pride and our strife that oftentimes emerges from our human relationships, the solution to that is to have the mind of Christ. The solution to that is to see Jesus and to try to reflect his mind. And I want you just to think about it this morning. Even, even chapter 4, verse 2, could you put your own name in there with someone else? Could I say Joe and Bob or Susie and Gertrude or whoever? Could I say that there's someone that you need to be sought to, to have the same mind in the Lord and, and, to, and to get along? And Paul's primary concern in this passage is not cerebral. His primary concern is to make this practical in that this would be worked out in real time, in real relationships, with real pragmatism. And he wants the Philippian church to adopt the mind of Jesus in their relationships so that they can find some sort of common ground. I know there's a balloon floating around over there. Just... Let it go. It's, I don't even know what it's going to do. Who knows? We'll see here. But his concern, some of you didn't even realize it. Now you're just going to be staring at it. Oh, it's sinking fast. Fantastic. I'll use that as an illustration in a moment. Just wait. It was planned. But his concern, when that gets to you, Rod, you grab that. His concern is relational here. Not just that you know some lofty things about Jesus. He wants us to be practical. And, and in sum, here's what Paul has said through the first four verses and now through the next uh, six or seven here. Here's what he's saying. The key to unity is humility, and the key to humility is unity. So the key to unity with other people is humility. 
And the key to humility is unity with the mind of Christ. This is really the, the sum total of this entire passage. And Paul is saying, if your mind is filled with Christ, it will be emptied of self. The two go hand in hand. So here's the, here's the prescription. Here's what you need. Have harmony with Jesus. Have the mind of Christ. And here comes the real meat of the passage. Here's the condescension. The humility of Christ, verses 6, 7, and 8. Who being, and this is one big free-flowing sentence, 6, 7, and 8. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. These verses stand in bold relief to the strife and the vainglory that was set forth in verse number three. And everything that God did to bring us salvation was the exact opposite of the vainglory that's censured in verse number three. And Paul says, look at Christ. And we're just going to hit this phrase by phrase. He says, Christ was being in the form of God. Literally everything that is essential to being God, Jesus was. Not just that he kind of looked like God, but everything that was essential to being God, Jesus was. So he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. This is something that Christ already possessed, Godness, so this is not robbery for him to be equal with God. Jesus didn't begin as baby Jesus in Bethlehem. Jesus has been pre-existent and is actually God. He's always existed, and as such, it's not robbery for him to be equal with God. Let me illustrate it this way. My son, Brennan, the oldest, he just turned four, will oftentimes want my cell phone. Sometimes I give it to him, sometimes I don't. But he's going to punch in my little code that he knows, and he's going to find YouTube or something, and he's going to begin to, to watch some video or do something on my phone. And inevitably, I am going to take my phone back from Brennan eventually. There may be a short amount of time, long amount of time, but eventually I'm going to go to work, or I'm going to need to make a phone call, I'm going to need to make this, or I'm going to take this. And not often, but occasionally, Brennan will begin to whine or whimper or cry, and he'll say something like, Daddy, you're being mean to me. You're taking my phone. Now, I'm not being mean to Brennan, and I'm not robbing Brennan of anything. That's my phone. I possess it, and I gave it to him. So for me to claim what is mine is not robbery or meanness from Dad. I actually get to do that. And this is saying that Jesus doesn't think it's robbery to be equal with God. This is not something that he can't seize upon. This is not something that he doesn't possess. He's already God. He's in the form of God. So it's not robbery for him to be equal with God. But what we'll find is that Christ does not exploit deity. He doesn't use it for his own benefit. Rather, he serves which is the antithesis of what we do as humans most of the time. We get power, we get authority, we get privilege, and we use it for our own benefit. And this, this bothers us, does it not? That someone who was our co-equal at work and, and we were employees together, they get the promotion, now they're above us, and now they start to be better than everybody else. Now they start to put everyone under their thumb. Now they start to act like someone. You're like, who are you? Where did you come from? You got a little promotion, a little bit of a pay bump, and now you're better than everybody else. 
We see this in, in our, our elected officials. A senator gets elected, and, and we are bothered when they exploit that for their own interest, when they begin to use it so they can have every fancy meal, so they can have the, the Cadillac pension plan, so they can take it for themselves and use the power and use the authority for themselves. We're bothered by this. And when you see Jesus, what we'll find is that he did not do that. Being in the form of God, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, doesn't exploit it. Instead, he'll make himself of no reputation, is what verse number seven says. This is actually a rare occasion if you uh, read the King James Version of the Bible, which is what we use to teach and preach from. A lot of reasons why I won't go down that rabbit trail today. But we use that. This is a rare occasion in the King James Version where it, where it paraphrases. We love the King James because it literally gives you word-for-word -word rendering most often. The actual word-for-word -word rendering, if you have a different version, it may say something like he emptied himself. Because the, there's three words here, kanao, heatu, kanao. It means he emptied himself empty. It's a proper paraphrasing. It's a beautiful paraphrasing to say that he made himself of no reputation, that Jesus emptied himself. Now talking about not just Jesus who's God in time past, equality with God, but Jesus who now in the incarnation is emptying himself. And Paul is setting up the starkest contrast. God actually emptying himself, God making himself of no reputation and taking upon him the form of a servant. Jesus, the one who is God himself and who never during the whole process stopped to be God, embraces flesh. And he takes upon him the form of a servant. He's made in the likeness of men. He becomes not just a man, but he becomes a servant. He's not born as an earthly king or a potentate, but he's born in humility, in a, a stable, in a manger, and walks through life as a carpenter's son, but he actually is a servant, not someone who's, who's using this for his own gain. Now, we have more to go, but I'll just stop here for a moment and say, I hope your petty behavior already feels silly. Already at this point in time. To look at what Jesus did and then to look at our selfish ambition and to say, you know what, that is just doesn't make any sense for a Christian to act that way. He did this and we can't swallow our pride. He did this and we're self-justifying ourselves and an apology sticks in our throat constantly. He did this and he emptied himself and we're full of ourselves. You see the contrast that's meant to, to, to be put forth here for us? To look at ourselves in the mirror and, and, to, and to see ourselves in, in light of Jesus and to say that this is, this is foolish for us to be striving, for us to have vainglory. That here's Jesus who empties himself. He takes upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbles himself. Here's Jesus, the one who came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many, the man who humbles himself and becomes obedient unto death. Born to die, he'll choose the path that's going to lead him to death. He's going to do this. He's going to do this all so that he can give his life a ransom for many and put other people first. And we're inconvenienced because someone wants five minutes of our time. That here is Jesus who not just, if it was just that he became man, that would be an act of condescension that was of infinite value. But it becomes a servant. 
and becomes humble. And he humbles himself unto death and then the cherry on top of it all, even the death of a cross. Not just a death, but the death of the cross. Now understand, in Philippi, first century, nobody's walking around with a cross around their neck on a necklace. There are no churches with crosses on top and on top of the steeple with lights to light them up. There are no Bibles that are embossed with a gold cross. The cross is a sign of defeat and death for criminals of the lowest degree. If you are a Roman citizen, you could potentially be executed by way of the cross, but you would have to be accused and, and found guilty of high treason. It was highly unlikely. Crucifixion was reserved for those that were of a lower class. It was reserved for the slaves. It was reserved for those that were lowly. This is why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians that the message of the cross was a stumbling block to the Jews and it was foolishness to the Gentiles that people look at a crucified Messiah and said, yeah, right, I'm going to buy into that and give my life to that. He died on a cross. Is that what you're telling me? This is lowliness of the infinite degree that the unchangeable, eternal, all-powerful God identifies with humans and with the weak and with the powerless to the extent that he suffers their fate. Brian, help me out for a minute and, and bring me that, that ladder for just a minute. Just to try to help illustrate this point. Honestly, the balloon did it better than probably the ladder does. All right, the balloon was way up there and came way, way down. That's probably a better illustration than the ladder, but we'll use the ladder nevertheless. This is, this is what the text is saying. This is not nearly high enough, but let's suppose that this is deity, way up here. I'm not going to sit up there because I'm, I'm not there. So let's just suppose this is deity. You'd probably, you'd have to go through the ceiling, really, and then eventually you'd get down here and there'd be archangel and angels or something. You'd need a whole lot more steps. But Jesus is in the form of God, equal with God, equality with God, and he comes down past the angels. Mankind, according to Psalms 8, is, is made a little lower than the angels, past the angels, and he comes down to, to let's just say right here, this is man. And as a man, he's not just a king. He doesn't just use his authority. He actually takes upon him the form of a servant, and he's humble. He comes to here. And in humility, he comes to death. And in death, he comes to the death of the cross. And honestly, if we had a basement, I'd walk down the stairs to the basement to try to illustrate this enough. But all the way down, he comes to man. And as a man, he's a servant, and he's humble. And he's, and he's humble unto death, and then the death of the cross. This is the illustration that Paul is giving that Jesus came all the way down. See it for what it is. And he's advocating to us as humans, we're here, that we become humble servants. He says, one step. That's all he's asking. Take your humanity and use it to be a humble servant. The odds are that you will not be asked to suffer martyrdom and actually become obedient unto death. Odds are that will not happen. It could. And the odds that you would become obedient unto death on a cross are extremely improbable. So what's being asked of you as a Christian is that you take one step down and to look at Jesus who took every step down all the way to the basement and to say, you know what, that seems reasonable. 
I look at, at my unwillingness to submit. I look at my unwillingness to give up of myself. I look at my unwillingness to, to put others first. And I have vainglory. And it's all about me. And it's all self-centered. And it's all about strife. And it's all, you know, I have to have my way all the time. I look at that and see it for what it is. See how small of an ask it is for us in light of the Savior to actually become humble. And what's funny is that the disciples of Jesus, they really struggled to get down to this step and take on humility. And they're constantly trying to pull Jesus back up to their rung. Jesus comes and he's, he's humble and he's a servant. Meanwhile, the disciples, they're standing up here above Jesus, bickering on who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom and who's, who's going to have the right hand and who's going to be with Jesus. Jesus is down here serving. Like, Jesus, get, up, get on up here. The kids come to Jesus. Like, kids, get away. Jesus don't have time for you. Jesus is like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not up here. I'm down here. I'm serving. Don't, don't suffer those children to come unto me. Bring them, bring them over here. There's a blind man as Jesus is going to Jerusalem and he cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And the disciples look at him and say, Shut up, dude. The king's going to Jerusalem. We don't have time for this stuff. And Jesus says, Don't rebuke him. Bring him over here. They're constantly trying to say, Jesus, you get on up here just in your humanity. And he said, No, I'm down here. I'm surfing. He said, Bring him to me. What, what do you need, buddy? Uh, I need to see. Done. It's over and over and over again, this, this example. Jesus, even on Thursday night before his betrayal, he's washing their feet to try to help them see, be a servant, be humble, do this. This is who I am. Exemplify this. And they struggle, and they struggle, and they struggle. And if we're halfway self-honest, we struggle, and we struggle, and we struggle to take on the mind of Christ. In lowliness of mind, esteeming others better than ourselves. But Jesus doesn't come to get, he comes to give. He doesn't come to, to be served, he comes to serve. He doesn't come in dominance, he comes in obedience to the Father's will. He leaves obedient angels to take up with petty little disciples. If it were me and I was choosing my team, I would have been seraphim and, and cherubim all the way. They would have been my team. But he didn't, he chose Peter and Andrew and James and John. They fear the storm and he steals it. They don't have money for taxes, he, he supplies it. They don't have drink for the wedding, they don't have food for the multitudes, Jesus makes it. He lets a woman in Samaria interrupt his sermon. He lets a woman in adultery interrupt his rest. He lets a woman with a disease interrupt his plans. He lets a woman with remorse interrupt his meal. The disciples never wash his feet, but he washes theirs. Soldiers never beg for mercy at the cross, but he extends it anyway. The disciples run away like scared little rabbits on Thursday night. And Sunday morning, he, arises, he rises from the dead and he goes and he finds them. Constantly. Humility, lowliness, meekness, giving us the example to follow. And if we're honest, we struggle. Now, I, I love our church to death. You know that. I love you to death. I love our church as a whole. I think we have an awesome atmosphere as a church. I, I love it. But can you imagine what it would be like if everyone in church had this mind, the mind of Christ? What that would, can you imagine, okay, let's just make it this way. Let's make it real easy. Can you imagine if two of you, you and your spouse had this mindset? Just two of you. What this would look like in your marriage or in your, in your home. It's been said that the golden rule is do unto others as you would have them do unto you, which is not in the Bible. People act like it is, but it's not. The real golden rule is doing to others as Christ has already done unto you. 
Look at him. Follow that example. See, see his condescension. See his humility. And what's beautiful about it is that this requires zero skill. Like, you don't need any ability to be a humble servant. You don't need a spiritual gifting. You don't need a seminary degree. We will have Wednesday classes this summer and in the fall and next spring and then in the summer over and over and over again. You know what you'll never see? How to be a servant class. There's, there's no teaching that's needed. You don't need 12 weeks on that. It's very simple. It's very easy to take that mindset and just to begin to choose to be a servant. And this passage calls us not just to look at Jesus and say, wow, Jesus, that's awesome, love him, but it calls us to look at that and to see his character and to change our own character and, and to work something from the inside out inside of us. And this, this is difficult because selfish desire is through and through in us. We have a newborn right now, and that little baby, he will, he will cry and cry and cry until he gets fed. I have a couple toddlers right now, and you know what will happen? One toddler will, be, will misbehave and will be crazy and, and, you know, just running around like a wild banshee until dad can divert his attention squarely to him and play with him, him alone and, and to just focus in on him. What, what is that? It's, it's selfishness that's coming out of a child. We grow a little bit older. Some of you got teenagers right now. And I'm sorry, but the 12-year-old is going to want the same privileges that the 17-year-old has. They may even want them in greater degree. Well, he's allowed to stay up till 10. Why can't I stay up till 11? And don't, don't we do, didn't you do this as a kid with your siblings and now your own children are doing this to you, wanting, wanting what really they, they should not want in the first place? And what happens is by the time we're adults, we are masters at dominating other people. We're proficient in manipulating situations for our own agenda. We are we're great at strutting our own stuff out of vainglory. And this becomes a normal course of action for, for many people and even many Christians, sadly. Most Americans even really struggle with this just by nature of our culture. We can strut sitting down. I've seen this even in sports. I played a bit of sports growing up. And even in, in the few years since it's been that, that I've played organized sports, you can see this worked out. It used to be even, I feel like old to say this, but it used to be in my day that, you know, when we were, we were playing sports, we didn't stretch your own stuff. If you made a good play, you went on with life. It was like someone else patted you on the back and so be it. No big deal. Nowadays, you make a great play, and I mean, you got to have a handshake that's 18 minutes long and a little dance to do for somebody and to, and to wave everybody and pat yourself on the own back. You know, Rudy is not being lifted up on the teammates' shoulders anymore. People just jump up themselves and start, praise me and give it to me. And that's where we live, just our culture, to, to constantly be seeking vain glory, I love what the Duke of Wellington said about William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce led in Parliament to abolish slavery in Great Britain, and he had a habit of playing with kids. He called it the glory of self-forgetting, that he for, would forget about himself or that he had some position of power when he just went and played with kids. And the Duke of Wellington said to Wilberforce, you've almost made me forget that you were a great man because you seem to have forgotten it yourself due to your interest in me. You have so put me first that it seems like you're not even thinking of yourself. You're just thinking of me and it's, this is making an impact on me. And I would encourage you to map your emotional expenditure from the last week. 
Like, what did you think about? What did you care about? What dominated your emotions and your drive? If you're like most people, there'll be a common theme in your emotional expenditure. It'll be yourself. What I want, what I need, what I have to do, what they need to do for me, it'll, it'll be I, 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 I. And the truth is that you're supposed to be concerned with others. There's, there's I, I love this ladder because humans... Even angels had the propensity to want to go up the ladder. What, what did Satan say when he revolted? I will ascend. I will be like the Most High. I want to climb on up here. That didn't go very well. What did Adam and Eve buy into in the garden? Satan said, eat this and you'll be like God. You can climb on up. So we look at ourselves and say, you know what? No, no, that's wrong. The shame on them, that's terrible. I'm not trying to climb up the ladder. I'll just stay right here and I'll be about me. I'm not going to try to go up. I'll just stay right here. And God says, no, go down. Take the humility. Look at what Jesus did. Take the humility, take the lowliness of mind and use it to serve other people. Most people are happy to sign up to serve God as long as they can do it in an advisory capacity. You know, God, I'll, I'll tell you what you need to do. In my humble but accurate opinion, here's what you should do in my life. And God says, no. Serve, give, put others first, let, let go, forgive, all of it. Let, have a mind of humility for other people. I spent too long, I need to move on. The exaltation. Paul segues directly from Jesus who comes all the way from God to death on the cross. And then he says this, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him. And given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When you think of Jesus, don't leave him in a cradle and don't keep him on a cross. Have Christmas, think about baby Jesus, you know, helpless in his mother's arms and learn some lesson for it, great. Think about Jesus on the cross, helpless there, tortured for us, Absolutely fantastic. But don't leave it there. Understand that he is in heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's, he has a, a place of prominent power and prestige, and he's exalted. He's highly exalted is what the text says. It literally means hyper-exalted. That Christ, who humbled himself, what happened with him is exactly what, not exactly what will happen with you and I, but there's a correlation with you and I. I want to thread this needle carefully. The scriptures teach over and over again that if we will humble ourselves, God will exalt us. You don't get to be God. You don't get to be Jesus. No one's going to bow to your name or confess your name. But humility that we exhibit, God takes that and he exalts us. And this is at least meant to be an implicit meaning to, towards the Philippians that this can be worked out even in, even in our own life. And you have to understand what Paul is saying here. It's, it's powerful. I don't have much time, but I want to give it to you nevertheless quickly. Paul is quoting here Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45 God is talking to the children of Israel, and this is what he says to them. He says, tell ye and bring them near, yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And then he says this, there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. 
Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, there is none else. I've sworn by myself, the words gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. Unto me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear. This is a text of Israel bowing down to Jehovah God and worshiping him as supreme one, as creator, and understanding that he is their savior who they can fully trust and Paul, this text is fiercely monotheistic, Isaiah 45. It teaches, I mean, with, with power that there's only one God. And Paul is not departing from monotheism. He's saying there is one God, and the God who will not share his glory with anyone else has shared that glory with Jesus. So apparently Jesus Christ, it's accurate to say that he was in the form of God, that there is equality with God, that, that he actually is God. This is what it's saying. These are, these are not two separate things, Isaiah 45 and, and, and Philippians 2, but they are one and the same that now Paul is shining a light on this, that it's at the name of Jesus, and Jesus is Lord, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess just that one day. There will come a time where there will be no stiff knees regarding Jesus. And his name is awesome. It fits perfectly on every man's tongue eventually. Maybe not in this life, although I would advocate it. If Jesus is not your Lord and Savior today, I would recommend that you bow the knee and that you submit to him and make him your Lord and Savior today. Greatest thing I ever did. But eventually, every tongue and every knee, every Muslim knee will bow, every atheist tongue will confess. Every demonic tongue will confess. Every demonic knee will bow. All of this to the glory of God the Father. Now for me, this helps me answer the question that nags at me when it comes to humility. Most of us say, okay, I should be lowly, I should be humble, I should put others first, I should be concerned about them, but what if I get taken advantage of? Doesn't that nag in the back of our mind? What if I do that and they use me? What if I do that and they don't care? What if I do that and they don't even come to faith in Jesus? What if they just take this and, and they use me and I'm taken advantage of? And the text is teaching clearly what the Bible teaches elsewhere, that if you go low, he will bring you high. That human may not bring you high, but eventually he will. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter 5. All of you be subject one to another. Be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Not the same exaltation that Jesus gets, but nevertheless an exaltation comes our way when we humble ourselves. And Paul's saying, look at it. Look, look at the divisiveness. Look at the vainglory. Look at what creeps into our relationships. See Jesus See how low he went. See what he took for you. See the condescension that is in his life and see what's happened because of that. Now do the same. Humble yourselves. Be a servant to other people. Let this mindset be in you. This is the solution to unity inside of a church to exhibit this mindset and to go forward with this and to understand that I may be taken advantage of, but God will exalt me in due time. And it's then and only then that you can let go of the joy-depleting habit of looking out for number one all the time. Then you can finally say, you know what? I can put others first. I can esteem them better. I can look on their things and not constantly be about myself. So seek his mind. 
Make it your prayer to say, Lord, I want, I want to reflect you. And not just in some mystical way, but in a real practical way. In my relationships, in my attitudes, I want your mind, I want to reflect that. I want who you were and are, I want that to come out in me. Ask him. I encourage you, I implore you, ask him. Lord, make your image to bear in my life. Help me to reflect you. I want your mind. I, I, want, I want to think like you would think. I'll end with this. Lewis recommends that we play pretend to try to help us do this. He says every, children know, every child knows how to play pretend. Whatever, astronaut, soldier, cowboy, princess, whatever, they all pretend. And in so doing, they learn skills and abilities that they would naturally need for that craft should they ever somehow pursue that one day. And he says, make it your goal to, to carve out some time, not just to pray and ask, but to carve out some time and say, you know what? I'm going to walk through life for the next hour. I'm going to try to walk through life today. Really, it should be always, but I'm going to force myself to say, okay, as I go through this, how would Christ see this? How would Christ respond to this? This is the old WWJD. It's the, it's the same thing, really. I want to go through life with the mind of Christ trying to work this out inside of my relationships. And I hope, I hope that I can, it's a, it's a tall order, I, I know. I want to do this. I hope you want to do this because the, the product and the fruit of this is what Paul's getting at. There's unity inside of a church family when that happens. You get unity through humility and you get humility through unity with the mind of the Lord.